This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. The U.S. intelligence community is being praised for its work in tracking the Russian invasion of Ukraine, predicting the attack six months ago, and tracking President Vladimir Putin's troop movements for a year. The kudos come 20 years after the agencies blundered by claiming that Iraq dictator Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction that touched off a war killing thousands of American soldiers. What has changed since then? And what role would this new weapon, cyber warfare, play in this battle? and future conflicts. Our guest today is Scott Shade, the former NASA security writer for the New York Times, who has been part of two Pulitzer Prize winning teams that expose Russian cyber hacking and that nation's attempts to interfere with our 2016 election. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Jerry. Great to be with you. I appreciate it. So as I mentioned, U.S. intelligence being heralded for their work in this Ukraine situation and tracking uh, Putin's every move. Is it warranted and how have they done it? Well, you know, in a, in many years uh, writing about the intelligence agencies. I was very much on the side of pointing out their flaws and faults, I would say. Mm -hmm. But in this case, I think they really do deserve the praise. And it's not just for tracking what the Russians were up to. Uh, And, you know, of course, the Russians denied at every stage uh, mm-hmm. until basically mm-hmm. the zero hour exactly. that they had any intention of invading Ukraine, even as they you know, put together 190,000 troops surrounding it. And uh, But what was, I think, particularly striking, and I don't know who made this decision, whether it was made at the level of the intelligence agencies or it was made in the Biden White House, But somebody decided to make a pretty radical break with what has been their practice for decades. Usually they keep everything extremely secret to a fault. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the people who looked in the National Commission that looked into the 9-11 attacks said that it was actually excessive secrecy that made the United States vulnerable to the attacks Hmm. because each agency had some information about the 9-11 hijackers, but they weren't talking to each other. They weren't putting it together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a very different situation. But what they did at each stage was they put the intelligence out. So, And so did the Brits. Uh, The British worked very closely with U.S. intelligence. And they, they were doing the same thing. So they announced that There had been saboteur teams sent into Ukraine uh, with the idea of provoking uh, some kind of violent action. They revealed that the Russians were uh, planning to uh, make videos that would capture some kind of uh, alleged violent act by the Ukrainians that they could use as an excuse for invading. And they repeatedly said, you know, Putin has made the decision. We think he's, well, first they said, we don't, he's totally prepared to to invade, but we don't think he's made the decision. Then Biden said he's made the decision. Mm -hmm. And 
that turned out to be, uh, I think, not only accurate, but also threw the Russians off their game. Right. Basically, if they, uh, with the state-controlled media, media in Russia, you know, now uh, compared with when I was living there back, I was there from 1988 to 91, the last years of Soviet power, and there was severe Soviet control of the media until about the time I was working there under Gorbachev when it was loosened up. And then, you know, over Putin's entire, you know, 20 plus years in office, uh, he has been tightening controls on the media. And just in recent days, he sort of finished off the last um, independent outlets. (laughs) And so Russians, uh, you know, are fed a diet that is completely controlled and approved by his government. And so what you would normally expect from the Russians, because they've done it many times in this circumstance, is they would announce uh, that a bunch of Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine had been slaughtered by the Ukrainians and Russia needed to go in to protect the other Russian Mm -hmm. speakers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because they're, because they had been called out on this uh, early, you know, it kind of took that out of their repertoire. They still, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Putin still made reference to genocide, uh, which was kind of ridiculous genocide taking place in Eastern Ukraine. Uh, There's no evidence for that, but, but he also, uh, but, you know, he kept it very vague. He couldn't say Mm -hmm. there had been Mm -hmm. an incident. Because everyone would around the world had already read that they were planning to fake an incident. So. Right, right, right. And it's so interesting uh, in the sense that, um, and it, what you were mentioning about revealing what the, what the intelligence was, I heard it called name to shame. So they, they let it out to shame the Russians. And, you know, you mentioned uh, 911, and this comes almost 20 years since um, we predicted Saddam Hussein had uh, weapons of mass destruction, and we know that was untrue and yeah. preci- precipitated the Iraq war. What has changed in the intelligence community since that time? Do they have more weapons? Well, they do. I mean, I think a lot of things have changed in the wake of that disastrous um, wrong call. Uh, you know, you know, a lot of people say that Bush and Cheney lied about weapons of mass destruction, and they certainly, and certainly in the case of Cheney, they exaggerated and hyped what they were being told. But they were being told by the CIA yeah. that there was lots of evidence that Saddam Hussein was working on nuclear and biological weapons. So, in that sense, there was a uh, you know a real intelligence blunder. And after that, they really strengthened, you know, there was a report done that was pretty tough on the, you know, this screw up, which has had, of course, colossal consequences for the world. Mm -hmm. And they've created more red teams uh, who, uh, you know, a bunch of intelligence analysts who are, you know, specifically assigned to look at a judgment that's been made by other people inside the intelligence agency, especially hmm. the CIA, hmm. and, you, you know, tear it apart, challenge it, take issue with mm-hmm. it, say, here's why we don't think this is right. Mm-hmm. You saw some of that in 2011 when uh, when the 
SEALs killed Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. If you remember, uh, Obama kind of went around the table with all his national security people and said, what percentage chance do you think the guy in this house is Osama bin Laden? And the answers ranged from like 30% to 80%. Yeah. But it, that was that was a step. Uh, you, you know, I think that reflected the changes they'd made after 2003 because, uh, you know, it was sort of like no longer pretend that you're, uh, you, you know, you're, you're just, uh, you know, everything mm-hmm. and, and you're, uh, you're always right about these things. Be willing to kind of mix it up, be willing to challenge yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, that's definitely a big change. You're mentioning, you know, the invasion of Iraq, of course, is very relevant to this discussion. Because Putin, in announcing what he calls, you know, a a, a military technical measure or whatever he calls this thing, uh, because they're not allowed to use in the Russian media the word war or the Mm. word invasion. Uh, (laughs) So the, uh, you know, he has made reference repeatedly to the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Right. And, uh, you know, that's a completely legitimate comparison. Yeah. And, you know, because there we were going not, you know, just over the border into a bordering, co- into a country that's right next door, as he has done, but, you know, halfway around the world, uh, based on what turned out to be bogus evidence. And the consequences, when you think about it, of the Iraq war just have gone on for year after year after oh, year. You know, too. it sort of, it completely destabilized the, uh, you know, the entire Middle East for, for, for years and created these jihadist groups, ISIS and so on, all came out of that decision. Uh-huh. And so you just hope that uh, Putin's mistake in this case uh, in invading Ukraine does not have the kind of years of consequences mm. that wow. the U.S. mistake yes. had in invading Iraq. As a former member of the KGB, Putin seems pretty deft in the computer hacking arena, as you have reported um, in the two teams that you worked on that won the Pulitzer. Officials have been surprised that they haven't seen more Russian cyber attacks during this Ukraine war. Are you? I am surprised. I am surprised. I would have thought that maybe they would have, um, you know, sort of softened the target, weakened the Ukrainian military, screwed up uh, President Zelensky, Ukrainian President Zelensky's ability to get out these, you know, quite riveting videos that he's, you know, video addresses that he's put out. Um, And I really don't understand it. The only thing you can say is that Ukraine was the target of massive Russian hacking uh, mm-hmm. by the Russian intelligence sector. Um, you know, in the years before the U.S. was attacked, which, of course, uh, on a large scale was 2016, mm-hmm. in the election, as you mentioned, and the Ukrainians, uh, with a lot of U.S. support, have greatly hardened their computer systems since then. And so they may, you know, they may have seen this coming and they may have 
uh, been able to protect their systems uh, a lot better this time around than they than they've been able to do in the past. You know, uh, you know, one of the ironies here is not only have we not seen much from the Russians, they have taken down some Ukrainian websites. Uh, they they've kind of mucked around a little bit, but uh, the very loose alliance of hackers that calls itself anonymous uh-huh. has mounted an effort to hack the Russians that uh-huh. has actually been somewhat successful. And so, you know, kind of anticipating that the Russians hmm. were going to turn to this hacking tool sure. as they have repeatedly. Other hackers who are on the Ukrainian <laughs> side, yeah, you, you know, great. really kind of got the jump on on the Russians. So it's, um, but you know, it's never say never because sure, sure. it may yeah. be that they're holding yeah. fire and right. allowing the Ukrainians to get overconfident or sloppy with their security, and you know, at some later phase of this of this attack, they may they may try it again. And we, as the United States, I'm sure, are on guard for that because um, this is the new arena, cyber warfare. And we've talked, everybody's talking about sanctions. But as I mentioned, Putin is pretty, pretty deft in this thing. Do you expect us to be on guard more so? You expect him to maybe ramp this up as this thing goes on? I think we absolutely are um, on high alert, as we should be. And there's been speculation. I don't think they've seen this yet, but obviously the sanctions that have come down both from the European Union and from the U.S. and other other countries as well around the world uh, that have come down on Russia in retaliation for this invasion uh, have been severe. They're they're much tougher than we've ever seen before, and the. Fear or the expectation is that uh, Russian hackers may try to mount attacks in sort of direct retaliation for that. For example, a bunch of Russian banks have been uh, taken off the so-called SWIFT system, which is a kind of high-tech communication system for um, financial exchange, and it really cripples these banks. So there's been speculation that Russian hackers may try to, you know, screw with the SWIFT system, which is used by banks all over the West. And uh, so they are on high alert. And I, I guess we should also uh, mention that so much of the work in cyber defense is done in the private sector. So you saw Microsoft uh, that you know, got in touch with Ukraine, as my Times colleagues uh, report a few days ago, uh, you know, got in touch with Ukraine and said they had seen Russian hackers inserting a kind of malware uh, called a wiper that just basically wipes out your hard drive or destroys your computer, and that it was being inserted in in certain Ukrainian systems. And Microsoft uh, was able to get a patch out to its, you know, gazillion customers, virtually everybody uses a computer mm-hmm. as some kind of Microsoft product on there. So they were able to patch this and block it because they picked it up very quickly. And that's pretty typical that, you know, I would say um, 
from what I have seen, it's probably more often the private companies that pick up these kinds of malware uh, attacks, the appearance of new kinds of dangerous software out there before the the U.S. government even, even though the U.S. government is looking for this stuff. For a company like Microsoft, it's kind of their bottom line and these are their customers. And so they have a huge uh, effort involving a whole lot of people in you know all around the world to look for anything that is uh, you know kind of screwing around with their various kinds of software, and they're very adept at that, and they're very quick to get out patches and try to block uh, whatever's happening. That was likened, um, interesting enough, to uh, Henry Ford in World War II when he stopped making cars and started making Sherman tanks. <laughs> and it was kind of likened to that same situation. These public-private uh, partnerships, you're going to see more of them um, as this whole cyber warfare evolution happens. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's just that, uh, you, you know, not that long ago, I suppose, um, hackers were sort of a little bit more of a concern of the government um, and computing in general was sort of, you know, some decades back, was sort of dominated by the government. The government was in on, in with IBM on the creation Mm -hmm. of the early big computers and so on. Mm -hmm. But of course, in the decades since, the invention of the PC, and then the smartphone, the World Wide Web, everybody, you know, everybody is connected now. And so these private companies are the real experts on a lot of this stuff. And in many ways, they've kind of left the government behind. And the government is in a position to to draw on those companies for expertise. Yes. And um, Microsoft was, was pretty, as you said, they were pretty quick to jump into this war and um, and help out. Uh, you were the Russian correspondent for the Baltimore Sun, as you mentioned, during the fall of the Soviet Union. What has surprised you uh, most about Putin's move? Well, you know, this, uh, this has been a long, uh, the saga of Vladimir Putin has, has been a, a long one with a lot of twists and turns. Uh, but I think, you know, when I, I was there from 88 to 91, basically till the, to the, you know, the, the, the fall the right. Soviet flag came down on Christmas yeah, day in 1991. Yeah. Yeah. And I published a book called dismantling utopia that was about the collapse and the time. And it sort of was an account of how, when, we arrived there in in um, in eighty eight. The Soviet system was still pretty much intact, and people were nervous about talking about stuff on the phone. Mm-hmm. the um, The press had just begun to open up a bit, but but over the next couple of years, the fear just fell away. People mm-hmm. didn't mind standing up in front of the Kremlin and and <laughs> saying, you know, Gorbachev's an idiot, and they didn't worry about saying that. No one cared about what they said on the phone anymore. And the press was just, you know, was liberated and was loaded with a lot of history from the Stalin period that uh, that that most citizens had never 
learned and they were full of comparisons with the West that never would have been allowed before. So, th- you know, we saw the this very exciting uh, process of the sort of liberation of the media. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then Putin, you know, in slow motion, reversed that process. And as I mentioned, he's pretty much completed it in the last week. They took off the air uh what's called TV Rain, uh, which is a, a web-based television broadcaster. And Echo Moskvi, Echo of Moscow, is, um, mm-hmm. is a radio broadcaster. And they were the last truly free, um, you know, critical voices in the media, right. and they've both come down. So, uh, so you could say this has put the, uh, y- you know, put put the finishing touches on Putin's control of the media. So, so in a way we've returned to Soviet times. The mm-hmm. only exception to that is, uh, and it's a big one is the internet, mm-hmm. which they, you know, they they've tinkered with, but they have not uh, done what China has done yet. And, uh, and it would be very difficult for them to do it. But at this point, so a lot of Russians, especially, you know, sort of more tech savvy, younger people in the cities are able to keep up with things and get a fairly accurate view of, of what's going on. But many, many, many Russians, uh, I would say the majority probably believe because this is what they've been told day after day after day sure. that, uh, their rush, their Ukrainian brothers are in the grip of a fascist Nazi clique Mm-hmm. And that the uh, that there's a limited military operation uh, that was forced on Russia to liberate. They use that word, liberate the Ukrainians right. from this terrible uh, group at the top. That's a bunch of Nazis. He calls them drug addicts. Oh my! And he says that yeah. they're basically in the clutches of NATO and the U.S. and the CIA, and you know they they uh, suit they they put on Russian TV uh, mm-hmm. footage to back that claim those oh claims. Uh, for example, they they had a mandatory evacuation of the enclaves in eastern Ukraine that are Russian supporting and that Russia mm-hmm. you know they're separatists and they uh, brought families out of those areas into Russia. Uh, which isn't very far on the train and so on. And then they've put on Russian TV endless footage of Russian families getting off the train in Russia and being greeted with food and flowers. And, yes, and yes. you know, to sort of promote this idea that uh, somehow the Ukrainians are under are the victims of their own government and that Russia has been forced to step in to save them. You were you were there when the fall, and they've all they've talked about the Ukraine and Vladimir Putin being, you know, um, very very. He called it, I guess, the geopolitical catastrophe of the twentieth century, and the Ukraine was for some reason the one country. But he he's not going to go back and try to get all of these countries. I mean, that would just be a, a severe undertaking, though. No. I don't think so. The uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you know, he was as folks might remember. Uh, he was at the time of the uh, of first the uh, collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, and then uh, 
you know, he, he was, he was actually in East Germany, he was stationed in East Germany. And there were, there was a mob, you, you know, basically, uh, outside the, uh, local headquarters, of the KGB and the Stasi, the East German secret police. And he sent a message, famously sent a message to Moscow, like, what should we do? And mm-hmm. got no answer. <laughs> and of course, this was under Gorbachev and Gorbachev was saying to the Eastern Europeans, hey, boys, you're on your own. And of course, that was followed by the Soviet yeah. collapse. So many people in the Soviet Union received the Soviet collapse with great joy and relief. But for Vladimir Putin, it was sort of a personal tragedy. And, um, you know, he's he's harbored this uh, grievance ever since. So uh, so it's not surprising that he would see this as a great tragedy. In recent years, I just learned recently, in recent years, he's been reading a lot of and occasionally quoting a group of uh, far-right nationalist, extreme nationalist Russian ideologue philosophers, I guess you'd call them, uh, a guy named Ivan Ilyin, who's long since dead, uh, mm-hmm. and two other guys, Alexander Dugan and Alexander Prakhanov, are, are people who are living now. And they all have beat the drum on this idea that Ukraine is part of Russia, Ukraine is mm-hmm. a made-up mm-hmm. country, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that Ukraine's past and future are all as part of Russia. And Putin clearly has come to believe this, yeah. perhaps yeah. To, a, to the point where he misjudged and thought that when they sent all these troops in, all these tanks in, that a lot of Ukrainians would say, thank God, you know, who knows yeah, what's in yeah. Putin's head. But, I, you know, <laughs> by all accounts, they're meeting with much more um, resistance, you know, right. firm and uh, and strong resistance from the Ukrainian military and civilians than they anticipated. So that might be one reason why he didn't, you know, he didn't see that coming. Yeah, he's always called Ukraine Little Russia. So, uh, you know, yeah. that kind of gives us a, an idea. It's so funny you mentioned the media. And I, I covered Ronald Reagan one time speaking to a Glassboro High School group. And he said there was a Russian and an American. And the American said, I could walk into the president's office and, and tell him, Reagan, you're an idiot. And uh, the Russian said, well, I can walk into our president's office, too, and say Reagan is an idiot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One of those good old Soviet jokes that, ha- that, that actually you could, re- you could revive that now. I think you could walk into uh, Putin's office and say Biden is an idiot and you'd be fine. Yes, that's right. Well, you are just completing a stellar 40-year career. Uh, You and I were together at the Baltimore Sun, where you were for a long time before going to the New York Times. And uh, uh, tell us what you're doing these days and, uh, you know, what you're working on. Well, I, uh, you know, I, when I left the New York Times, uh, I, you know, I was, I was very happy there. They were pretty happy with me, but I was just getting pretty long in the tooth. And we had all these incredibly talented young reporters coming on. And I, I'd always wanted to do some teaching. So I've taught a few courses at Johns Hopkins yes. University. Great. And uh, I, I've written a couple of books and I wanted to write another one. And, and this is something completely different. I've gone back to the 1840s and it's a nonfiction book from the history of Chesapeake, the, 
the slave trade and the Underground Railroad in in uh-huh. in, uh, in the Mid Atlantic here in the 1840s. So I'm having some fun with that. A lot of people don't realize Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass were actually on uh, adjoining plantations, I believe. I read a biography of Harriet Tubman. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the most interesting figures in that period came from this area because, in part because the Pennsylvania line, the Mason-Dixon line, so close, right? was so close, and you could yeah. get there in a couple nights uh, of yeah. running, and a yeah. lot of people did. Well, we look forward to that, and I congratulate you on your career, and thank you for your service. I know you've been traveling, and you traveled the world, and you did you know, everything, so I don't think people think of journalism as service, but I certainly do, <laughs> and I thank you for it, and I well, thank thanks, you for Jerry. being on the show today. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Jerry. And we will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.